Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The story of how and why Wisconsin went red in 2016 starts long before any votes were cast for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Wisconsin politics could and should have been a sort of canary in the coal mine. Amid the political flashpoints felt across the country, the Great Recession, the Tea Party movement, and the growing prominence of right-wing media, Wisconsin's political landscape was changing. And long before Donald Trump was on the national stage, Wisconsin had a leader who upended norms and charted a new path for the state, Governor Scott Walker. Tonight, I want to tell, tonight, I want to tell every worker, every family, and every business, big or small in this state, that you have an ally in the governor's office. Wisconsin is open for business. Scott Walker was elected governor in 2010 and served until 2019. During his nearly decade-long reign as the chief executive of the state, he ushered in a conservative agenda that radically altered Wisconsin's trajectory. Today, we're going to tell that story. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is Winning Wisconsin, the story of one state fighting for its own political identity with national implications. For those of you who may not be familiar with Scott Walker, let's get a sense of the guy. Scott Walker grew up religious and conservative. His father was a Baptist pastor, and Walker sometimes gave the sermons in his father's absence. He attended Marquette University in Wisconsin, but left before graduating to work full-time at the Red Cross. When Walker was 24, he met his wife, Tonette, in a karaoke bar. Twelve years his senior, Tonette was from a Catholic pro-union Democratic family. Despite the difference in religion, party, and age, the two were engaged within months of meeting. They got married on the birthday of Walker's political hero, Ronald Reagan. Scott Walker began his rise in Wisconsin politics, first in the state assembly and then as Milwaukee County Executive. From the start, his candidacy was built on foundational Republican principles, limited government, and fiscal responsibility, conveyed through a refreshing populist image where Walker leaned on his working-class qualities. Well, it's interesting. Scott Walker was kind of pitching himself as kind of a right-wing populist, albeit with better manners and a more moderate temperament than somebody like Donald Trump. That's Dan Kaufman, author of The Fall of Wisconsin. He's a native Wisconsinite whose work is regularly featured in The New Yorker. His book is excellent. So if you're dying for more Wisconsin analysis, I really recommend it. Dan is also the last person I know who still uses a flip phone, which I genuinely feel is worth mentioning. Dan gave me an example of how Walker pitched himself as an everyday kind of guy in his brown bag ad campaign where Walker's packing himself a sack lunch. Here's a clip of that. Hi, I'm Scott Walker. I pack a brown bag lunch so I can afford to pay for other things, like Wisconsin's high taxes. Government should have to make some tough choices and live within its means, just like Wisconsin families do. You know, if you agree, 
Raise your brown bag and join us. And while I'm sure many progressive Wisconsinites wish Scott Walker was famous solely for his Donna Reed-inspired campaign ads, that's not the case. Scott Walker became notorious for his divisive political strategy of divide and conquer. Good to see you. Oh, thanks for having us. A year into Walker's governorship, a recording started circulating. The video was taken just after Walker was elected. It shows him walking into a building lobby, the kind with automatic glass doors, fake plants, and overhead fluorescent lighting. Walker is greeted by his largest supporter, Diane Hendricks, who asks if Wisconsin could ever be an entirely red state. Let's listen to that. Thank you. Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red state? and work on these unions oh, yeah. and become a right to work? Well, we'll in fact, the what big thing- What can we do to help you? Well, we're gonna start in a couple of weeks with mm-hmm. our budget adjustment bill. The first step is uh, we're gonna deal with uh, collective bargaining for all public employee unions. Because okay. you divide and conquer. A quick bit of background on Diane Hendricks. According to Forbes, Diane is the richest self-made woman in the United States. Her net worth tops that of Meg Whitman or even Oprah. She founded ABC Supply, a roofing company with her late husband, and it clearly went extremely well. She is, quite possibly, the most powerful woman in Wisconsin. In the clip, Walker assures Diane that he can make her dream of a completely red Wisconsin happen through the strategy of divide and conquer. This means pitting taxpayer against taxpayer, black against white. The concept may not be revelatory, but to hear it said aloud, that's extraordinary. Here's Dan again. You know, that was that was really key to his uh, message. That meeting where he said that was supposed to be private and a, a documentary filmmaker captured it she, to his chagrin. But it, I think it really revealed his thinking of this kind of politics, um, which wasn't really a mystery. And frankly, what uh, Republicans have been doing for, for decades, um, going back to the Southern strategy and elsewhere, using race to divide people along racial lines rather than class interests. But to hear it articulated that way was kind of shocking. Scott Walker ignited his divide and conquer strategy with the introduction of the budget repair bill, which later became known as Act 10. Now remember that name because Act 10 became a lightning rod in the state. First off, I want to talk very specifically about the fact that what we're proposing in this budget adjustment bill is really about our commitment to the future. And if we fail to make that commitment, we're ultimately going to have to deal with the consequences, uh, not only ourselves, but the consequences we'll pass on to our children and their children into the future. And so this is an incredibly important moment in our state's history. Walker positioned the bill as a way to address a projected $3.6 billion deficit in the state budget. He suggested balancing the budget by restricting collective bargaining rights for public employees to only wage negotiations consistent with inflation. This meant that public unions could no longer negotiate benefits for its members, like health care and pensions. In fact, Walker's proposed bill increased mandatory employee contributions to these benefits. And basically it did two things. It it increased pension contributions and and cut pension and health care benefits for public workers, teachers, correctional officers, every kind of public employee. On a secondary level, it stripped away the collective bargaining rights of all of those workers, effectively killed them. There were a few exceptions, uh, most of the police unions and the firefighters uh, who had actually been supporters mostly of Walker. Basically, uh, Walker sold it as it was during a period when austerity was very prominent and pushed. 
And um, it was part of a long movement to erode the strength of labor. The success of Act 10 was built on the divide and conquer strategy Walker had promised Diane Hendricks. I think most importantly, kind of pitted the taxpayer against the public employee. And in Milwaukee, that also has a coded aspect. A lot of the public workers are uh, minority African-American, a higher percentage of them than elsewhere. And there was always a sense of, you know, these public employees are taking from you. Now, that is also the generalized message of the kind of right-wing infrastructure that has been pushing anti-labor efforts for, for decades. But Wisconsinites didn't take this news passively. There was massive outrage in response. In March of 2011, nearly 100,000 people gathered at the Capitol building in protest. The legislation has brought thousands of protesters to the state capitol. Friday marked the fourth straight day of demonstrations and the largest to date. It was just a matter of time before this bubble would burst. And so today is Wisconsin. Anti-worker acts by governors are inspiring people and not intimidating people to fight back. So far, the massive protests have shown no signs of letting up. Democrats in the Wisconsin state legislature tried to barter. We'll accept the increased cost of benefits if bargaining rights remain intact. That was a no-go for Walker. Democrats in the state house didn't have enough votes to defeat the bill. But since the bill was technically tied to the state budget, a quorum of representatives was required for it to pass. So the Democrats did the only thing they could. They left. I don't, I don't know where he is. I have no idea where Mark Miller is. Wisconsin Democrats are still nowhere in sight, and it doesn't look like they're coming back to work anytime soon, threatening to stay in hiding for weeks, even avoiding state troopers. Two of the 14 elusive state senators surfaced briefly Friday on the campus of Northern Illinois University. If it means that we have to go to Illinois so that we're not within the parameters of Wisconsin, so that we can make that stand, we can slow it down, then that's what we needed to do. It was our only option. Authorities can't cross state lines to get them, and the Senate can't vote on the governor's budget repair bill without them. So basically all of the state senators fled to Illinois because they had just enough to prevent this quorum. They didn't have the votes to defeat the bill, but they were hoping to draw public attention to it. That played out for weeks. They were hiding out in hotels in Illinois, and there were threats to send the sheriff across state lines. There were actually a couple of secret meetings between a couple of the more moderate Democrats and a couple of Republicans trying to negotiate a return to the Capitol so this bill could be voted on. But ultimately, the Democrats were outmaneuvered. Eventually, the Republicans came up with an idea to strip it of certain provisions so that they could just vote on the part, the heart of it, that would no longer require a quorum. They drafted this bill very quickly. They had a meeting, uh, and the state, the assembly was still there, and they basically called a really quick meeting. There's a law in Wisconsin that you have to give 24 hours notice, but this was being rammed through at the last minute, and there was a dramatic scene where Peter Barca, the Speaker of the Assembly, and Scott Fitzgerald, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, presented the bill to him, and he said, you know, this is illegal. 
because we, we have not had 24 hours notice. And this is in violation of the law. Representative Barca. Clerk Paul Roll. No, excuse me. No, listen, it says if there's any doubt as to whether good cause exists, the governmental body should provide 24 hours notice. This is clearly a violation of open meetings law. Now, look, you've been shutting people down. It is improper for you to move forward while this is a violation of the open meetings law. You're not allowing amendments, and that is wrong. Now, I, I, Mr. Chairman, this is a violation of law. This is not just a rule. It is the law. There must be. No, Mr. Chairman, this is a violation of the open meetings law. It requires 24, at least two hours notice. What have you done? Okay. For many people, it represented a kind of turning point of a breaking of that kind of, of the Wisconsin of the past where nothing like that would be attempted to just ram something through. And it became the norm. I mean, I was at the legislature many times where stuff was just rammed through in the middle of the night, like, like a banana republic, really. So what had originally been called the budget repair bill was removed from the budget and passed late in the night. Wisconsinites continued to organize and gathered enough signatures to force a recall election of Walker in 2012. But he won, becoming the first U.S. governor to survive a recall election, and he was again re-elected in 2014. In 2015, nearly four years to the day after passing Act 10, Scott Walker made Wisconsin the country's 25th right-to-work state, assuring that private unions could no longer require members to pay dues. Divide and conquer. The passage of Act 10 reflects two dramatic shifts in American politics. The first, a systematic attack on labor, and second, a radical shift in the Republican Party. Let's tackle the first point. Why was the first order of business to go after unions? Well, there's a political motivation. Unions have long been organizing tools for the Democrats. Here's Dan. And the reason it was so significant is because Republicans were keenly aware of the relationship between the Democratic fundraising base of unions and more than that, the cohesion that unions bring. Union members are much less likely to have uh, racist attitudes. There, there's a lot of value that unions bring outside of just bargaining for wages and uh, better healthcare benefits and so on. That's really important. Doing that also helps everyone in the community. It brings up wages for everyone. For example, if you're with a company that's unionized and your competitor, even if they're non-union, will have to compete more or less to, uh, to keep those workers. So it, it elevates everything. And that is why during a higher periods of unionization in the United States, you had much less income inequality. You can look at a graph and see the, the decline of union, unionization in the United States correlates almost perfectly with the rise of astronomical income inequality. So, the decimation of unions in one sector ripples into others. By negotiating higher pay and benefits for their members, unions buoy the whole labor market. Non-union employers have to compete with those standards in order to attract labor. So on the flip side, when a union's negotiating power is weakened, Competitors don't have the same pressure to offer competitive pay and benefits. So wages stagnate, benefits become more rare. Everyone's fate rises and falls together, which is what made the strategy of divide and conquer so effective. And in this fracturing, you're getting increasing resentment and bitterness 
and increasing economic anxiety. You're replacing jobs that used to pay $30 an hour with good benefits and a pension with $15 an hour jobs at Amazon warehouse with no benefits. You know, the anger over it can manifest in, in very um, unpredictable ways. I spoke with Laura Dresser about Wisconsin's economy a few months back. Laura, as you may remember from episode one, is the associate director of COWS, a seemingly unironically named Think and Do Tank connected to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Laura is a labor economist. She specializes in low-wage work and workforce development. Laura strikes me as the ideal professor. She has that inviting energy mixed with total clarity that makes you feel like there's no question too small. Laura reflected on how Wisconsin's labor battles are a microcosm of larger trends in America. So deunionization and and both the economic and political power of unions that um, is part of this national conversation has played out in a very intense and focused way here. The restructuring away from manufacturing and into a kind of more diverse service economy with fewer answers for folks without four-year college degrees and fewer answers about economic opportunity, you know, that's played out here in a serious way. And then that we went from being a relatively equal state to a state with incredible racial disparities, right? That's, you know, and all three of these are related and they're all part of this national story and national shifts, but we've seen sort of unique or amplified versions of them here. These national trends Laura's pointing to may have been amplified inside Wisconsin, but the impact of these changes didn't stay within the state. Here's Dan Kaufman again. And you saw in uh, 2017, Grover Norquist wrote a very interesting piece, the anti-tax crusader, basically saying that Act 10 had delivered Wisconsin for Donald Trump. And there is a lot of research being done that shows Deunionization corresponds to a decline in Democratic turnout, significant, somewhere between two and three percent, which, and you know, Donald Trump won Wisconsin by 23,000 votes. Dan's right. One study, a collaboration between Boston University, Columbia University, and the Brookings Institute, found that right to work states show a 3.5 percent dip in Democratic voter turnout and a two to three percent dip in voter turnout overall. Trump won Wisconsin by less than 1%, so that dip can be decisive. According to Bureau of Labor Statistics, the year Act 10 passed, roughly 13% of Wisconsin's workforce belonged to a union, about two points above the national average. By the time Walker left office in 2019, that number had fallen to 8%, two points below the national average. Walker was applauded in conservative circles for his agenda. He'd not only dismantled public and private unions, but he'd also expanded school vouchers that siphoned funds from the public education system, all while running a budget surplus. Walker's accomplishments in Wisconsin propelled him to national fame in the Republican Party, and he entered the 2016 presidential primary as an early favorite. His campaign may have fizzled out quickly, but his platform lives on in the Republican playbook. Maybe this all sounds like run-of-the-mill partisan politicking, but this wasn't normal in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was built on progressive ideals and small-D democratic principles. Here's Dan. Wisconsin always had a reputation, somewhat earned and somewhat maybe overstated, about Wisconsin nice. It was a sort of bipartisan consensus around certain principles, the right to vote, encouraging people to vote, kind of civic engagement, 
support for public institutions, even support for collective bargaining rights. People forget that in 1967, it was a Republican governor that extended them to include all state workers as well. So there was, there was a lot of sort of progressive, pragmatic kind of ethos embedded into the state. And Walker really transformed that. It's become a much more bitterly divided place since him. And in that way, it also paved the way for a kind of Trumpian style politics. This emphasis on progressive principles was sort of in the water to begin with. The state was largely settled by Scandinavian and German immigrants in the 19th century, who practiced this brand of pragmatic progressivism. And so Scott Walker's actions around Act 10 were, in the eyes of many progressives, just as much an attack on Wisconsin culture as it was on the teachers and other public employees. It left many Wisconsinites gawking at a Republican party that felt completely transformed. It was all, became all about, 100% about holding political power at all costs. The shift towards a more dogmatic Republican Party coincided with the rise of right-wing media. Good morning, Wisconsin. You're listening to News Radio 620 WTMJ. And joining me live on the line is the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, Charlie. Great to be with you. That's Charlie Sykes. He's a former conservative talk radio host who was on the air for decades in Wisconsin. But his longtime support for the Republican Party reached an impasse in 2016. Now a never-Trumper, Charlie has spent a lot of time reflecting on how the Republican Party transformed before his eyes. He wrote about it in his book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, and he credits a lot of the change to the rise of right-wing media, which he was a part of for many years. When I caught up with Charlie, he was sitting thoughtfully in a creaky leather chair. You'll hear that throughout his recording. So, remember, I was on the air for 23 years here in, 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 in Wisconsin, and when I began in the early 1990s, conservative media was very small and very isolated. And um, I mean, we were on a few AM radio stations. Remember what AM radio used to be like in the early 1990s? It was basically like some abandoned strip mall. Um, nobody was there. So suddenly there was the are these voices that um, found an audience that felt that it was being ignored by the rest of the media. And the way I felt about it was... If the legacy media is going to ignore these folks and their issues, well, then that was a gift to uh, conservative media. But I always thought of us as an alternative voice, that we were the other side of the story. So the assumption was that you would, um, you, you would consume the media, you would read the newspaper, you'd watch television, and then you would tune in and you would get a different point of view with different voices. So that was at least what I thought was happening. What was actually happening was that we were morphing into this alternative reality silo. I mean, keep in mind that in the early 1990s, there was no Fox News. There was no Breitbart. There was none of this. You know, when Ronald Reagan was president of the United States, there was no conservative talk radio. You didn't even have the Rush Limbaugh's of the world until after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed in the late 1980s. So... You, you had this conservative media that was growing and metastasizing over time. There's definitely some 2020 hindsight going on here. To say you were part of a media narrative, but shouldn't have been expected to present all the necessary information, is a little too convenient. But perhaps having grown up in the era of polarized media, I'm too jaded on this issue to fully appreciate Charlie's mea culpa. Regardless, 
Charlie did start to notice something was shifting. I mean, first of all, my background, I'm a former newspaper reporter. I worked for the Milwaukee Journal. I used to work for magazines. I've been, you know, was... uh, uh, work for, you know, mainstream television stations um, and, you know, have written. So one of the things I tried to do, though, was to emphasize the importance of of fact checking, by which I meant at least make sure you don't pass on bullshit. Don't pass on propaganda. Don't pass on fake news. If your Uncle Otto forwards you an email from, you know, libertypatriotrising.com that Hillary Clinton is stacking up bodies in Columbus, Ohio, don't forward that. It's not true. And so for years... I would push back on people and say, hey, thanks for sending me that, but this isn't true. This, you know, it's, there's lots of reasons for you to have your opinions, but this information is false. And here's, here's why. Here's the, here's the true story about all this. And up until, I would say late 2015, early 2016, overwhelmingly people would go, hey, okay, I'm really embarrassed. I'm sorry. Um, I won't pass that on. Thank you for pointing this out. Then what started to happen was that the more I would push back, people would go, well, that's from the New York Times or the Washington Post or NPR, or that's from any source outside of the bubble, and they wouldn't accept it. And that was, so by the middle of 2016, what had been an alternative media had become this different universe. This, this We had destroyed the immune system to fake information, and I couldn't break into it. You could not falsify the information. And that's when I realized that we had gotten into a different place so that it's possible for a lot of these conservative voters to live in a completely different information world with different issues, different facts, different personalities. So, you know, there, there, was, there was a shift there. And different personalities certainly came into play. When Donald Trump was campaigning for the presidency, Charlie made it very obvious that he did not buy him as a genuine conservative. Here's Charlie's famous interview with Trump right before the Wisconsin primary in 2016. Some of us have worked for decades on developing and advancing conservative ideas. And you want to talk about your record. I mean, you've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Clintons, to Harry Reid, to John Kerry, Chuck Schumer, Charlie Rangel. In your book, you insulted Ronald Reagan. You praised Obama's, Obama's stimulus as terrific. You've called for the largest tax hike in history. You've endorsed universal government-run health care. You've endorsed abortion on demand, gun control. So my question is, why shouldn't conservatives here in Wisconsin think that your claim to be a conservative now is just a giant fraud? Well, first of all, let me just explain. And since Trump's election, the Republican Party has become unrecognizable to Charlie. Among the conservative base, it's gotten, it's, it's, beca- it's become thoroughly Trumpified, which is amazing to me, because as I remind people, in early 2016, we were resistant to the Trump virus. Donald Trump was not popular here in Wisconsin. He, he was beaten badly in the primary. I, I can't tell you, I, the, I can think of one elected official who was Trumpian before the primary. But now you can't find anyone in the Republican Party of any prominence. Well, that's not completely true, but very few people who have any prominence who are willing to break with, with Donald Trump. So that's been a rather radical transformation of the Republican Party in Wisconsin. But that doesn't necessarily mean the state as a whole is swung right. It means that I think the Republican base has become more disconnected, I think, with the mainstream electorate. Because clearly Trump is a symptom of this as well. Trump didn't create this. This was a pre-existing condition. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten Donald Trump. Um, and keep in mind, in Wisconsin, 
Wisconsin had a very different kind of Republican Party. We were the we were Paul Ryan Republicans, right? Uh, whatever you think of Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump are polar opposites. So I'm thinking we are the Paul Ryan kind. And then by the end of 2016, we were Donald Trump. So something had, had, had happened there. I think it was gradual. I think I missed it. I think I ignored some of the warning signs early on, but then it accelerated and has accelerated since. I mean, whatever I wrote in the book, it's gotten much, much worse. Charlie may have missed it. Most Americans missed it. But I don't think we necessarily should have. The systematic attack on labor and the degradation of unions across the U.S. should have been an emergency red flashing light for the Democrats. The passage of Act 10 in a state that originated some of the most progressive pro-labor laws in the country should have been cause for alarm on the left, especially given the known effects of decreased union membership, economic inequality, and wage stagnation. Act 10 should have been enough. This is me. This is Laura background on her porch blabbing. But I feel in a way that Scott Walker through Act 10 demonstrated a possibility to Trump that a kind of belligerent approach could win. So I know it's weird to say that Scott Walker, who could not even hold a candle to Trump in the, you know, like couldn't last 60 days on the national debate stage, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a weird thought, I think, but I really do feel, and I think it's hard not to be from Wisconsin and feel like you were at the center of this intense experiment in divisive politics and you watched a Republican, uh, consensus gel around that and then a national figure just put it on steroids. I, I like the Laura on the porch uh, persona. <laughs> <laughs> Next week on Winning Wisconsin, we're headed outside the state capitol and into the communities that give Wisconsin its nickname and ultimately swung the state for Donald Trump, Dairy Country. I can't think of a single farmer that doesn't feel a very strong sense of identity with what they do. I don't think that anyone in Washington knows we really exist or even, you know, I don't think we're even on the radar. Send help. (laughs) Winning Wisconsin is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch, and produced by myself and Maddie Foley. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. To stay up to date on all of Wonder Media Network's election coverage, you can find Wonder Media Network at WMN Media on Twitter, and I'm at Grace Lynch08 on Twitter. Talk to you next week. Hey there, listeners. If you're enjoying Winning Wisconsin, and I hope you are, you should definitely check out Women Belong in the House, Wonder Media Network's flagship show. A hundred women currently serve in the House of Representatives, and that's a record. But still, women make up just 23% of the governing body. On Women Belong in the House, host Jenny Kaplan seeks to understand the state of gender representation in office and asks how Congress would change if it looked more like the people it represents. This is a landmark election for a number of reasons, but it's also another historic year for women running for office. This season, Jenny is speaking with women who are running in some of the most contentious swing states in the country. In fact, episode three features Wisconsin Congresswoman Gwen Moore, 
You'll hear from her later on in this show as well. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to podcasts.